Well, hello, everyone. Like I said, my name is Adam. I am one of the campus pastors at Merrill, and it is so good to be with all of you. I'm excited tonight because I figured with young adults, I could preach from a tablet. I could have a coffee on stage. I could wear blue jeans. This is the best way to preach. I love it. Thank you guys for being so welcoming uh, to me this evening. Um, I just want to say I have been really excited, actually, to share this book of Zechariah with you. Uh, Months ago, when Pastor Sam asked me to teach this book, I think I had forgotten what a wild ride this book is. It's a little bit crazy, and you're going to see that tonight. Uh, But so tonight, what I'm going to do, one of the things we're going to do, hopefully to help, I'm going to have some visuals on the screen, and I'm hoping that will keep us all on the same page, because tonight we're going through all 14 chapters of Zechariah, and I hope this keeps us on the same page, but what I want to challenge each one of you to do is after the message tonight, there are going to be some printouts of these visuals for you to take with you tonight. And I want to challenge you to read this book this week, uh, one, two, three, 20 times, and just see how these visuals line up to see if, uh, if they help you or not. Because one of the things that's going to be hard for you to do, even though I encourage you to do it, is to follow along in your Bible if we're going through 14 chapters of Zechariah. So uh, that uh, grab one of those before you leave today. I'm going to pray one uh, quick time before we dive in, and then we'll get started. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are big and you love us, and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and the thoughts that each one of us think be pleasing in your sight for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let's set the stage for this book. The year is 520 B.C. It's more than five decades before Jesus would be born. It's more than 1,500 years ago from our time. And what's left of the Jewish nation had just experienced one of the most difficult and terrible times an ancient civilization could go through. About 70 years ago, the Babylonian Empire had invaded their land, had destroyed their capital, had razed their temple and carried their people off into exile. Families were split up, many were killed, and and many would never see their homeland again. The prophet Jeremiah foretold that this exile would last 70 years, and that time is almost up. Jeremiah predicted that after the exile, God would restore his people to the land. He would put the branch, the title for the messianic king, on the throne, and that he would be with them. There would never fail to be a king and a priest before uh, God Almighty. And according to Jeremiah, this branch would multiply kings and priests before God as numerous as the angelic host in heaven. Well, there was a little glimmer of hope about 20 years ago when King Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to Judah and to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But 20 years have gone by and the the foundations are still in ruins. The temple is not finished. And there is absolutely no hint that some Messiah is going to be sitting on the throne. The return exiles are looking around. They have the promises of God in hand, and they say, God, really? Is this going to happen? And this is the situation that God addresses in the book of Zechariah. The people have these promises in hand, but given their circumstances, given what they see, how could anyone expect God to deliver on these promises? 
they're left asking God, is it time? Are you going to do anything? Aren't you sovereign over the whole earth? God, what about the promises? Isn't it finally time to restore the kingdom to us? And friends, I want to suggest that we ask questions like this of God all the time. We ask questions like, God, what's going on? God, what are you even doing? God, there's so much evil and wickedness all around. Why don't you wake up? God, there are believers being beheaded in your name. Won't you stop it? God, when are you going to act? God, what about the promises? God, isn't it time to do something? Well, today we are going to let the prophet Zechariah answer these questions. And I want to warn you, it's a wild ride. We're going to let Zechariah answer them in his style and his method. And if you're a type A personality, this is where we're going tonight. Now, many of you are probably thinking, he doesn't know what type A personality means. When I showed this to Pastor Andrew, no lie, he flipped them over and backed up as if it was a spider. So this is a type A's worst nightmare, quite literally. There are nightmares in this book. This book is a wild ride. It's full of strange imagery and symbols. Many appear in dreams and visions. And we're going to go through, like I said, all 14 chapters tonight. We'll see that this book naturally divides into two big chunks, two big halves. Now, before we dive into half one, I know I got a lot of intro information here. Let's talk a, a moment about the style of this writing. Zechariah first is a prophecy, and like all biblical prophecy, it's concerned mostly with the obedience and faithfulness of God's people, not so much about predicting the future. There are indeed a ton of future elements in this book, but the concern is the present allegiance and faithfulness and behaviors of God's people in light of the realities that are about to be revealed. Second, Zechariah is also apocalyptic. This word apocalyptic, it means unveiling. It means revelation. This is where the word revelation gets its name. It too is apocalyptic. And there's three things we should keep in mind when we read apocalyptic literature. First, apocalyptic literature, it reveals heavenly secrets not formerly known to us. The visions and images, they depict a world that transcends our reality and they invite us in to the imaginative participation that it's inviting us into. We get glimpse of the real reality and how God is working behind the scenes and friends, it looks radically different than what it seems. Second, apocalyptic literature uses provocative symbols to describe reality rather than state it. Unlike the literal genres, this is a genre that is much more powerful and much more potent, and it uses images and symbols to provoke our imaginations and our emotions to describe reality rather than state it. And lastly, symbolism in found in apocalyptic literatures allows it to be flexible over time. All these images and symbols are indeed founded in the original context. We need to understand the original meaning, the original audience, and the original message for us to make sense of this. But then it invites us in to draw parallels between Zechariah's time and our time today. 
what we will see is back in Zechariah's time and in our time today, we're going to see the depiction of the perversity and reality of evil. We are going to see the guarantee of God's judgment. We are going to see that God's people need to trust God with the future. And we'll also see God's unstoppable victory for God and his people. So do you got all that? Because we need to keep all of that mind as we, in mind as we dive into the first half of this book. The first half of the book uh, is in chapters 1 through 8. And it answers this question, God, is it time to restore the kingdom? The first half of the book, it has a clear literary structure, but it's not linear. I think this is what it looks like. And with this up on the screen, let's dive right in. So the first half of the book, it begins with an introduction and a conclusion. And in the introduction, Zechariah calls the returned exiles to obedience and faithfulness. Verses 3 and 4. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I'll return to you. Do not be like your ancestors. The main problem is addressed right up front the reason the temple is unfinished, this symbol of God's presence with his people, is because they're acting like their forefathers. God says, don't be like them. If you return to me, I'll return to you. And at the end of the introduction, it looks like the people respond in a positive way. It seems positive. They respond, and it says at the end here, it says, then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. But as we'll see in a moment, the conclusion is shed light on what's really going on. In chapters 7 and 8, we have our conclusion. And in the conclusion, this delegation comes to Zechariah and says, can we finally stop mourning like we have been all these 70 years? In essence, what they're asking, has our fasting worked? It worked? Has our rituals moved God's hand to finally act on our behalf? Will God throw off the shackles of our foreign oppressors? Will he put a descendant of David on the throne? Will he finally restore the kingdom to us? But Zechariah doesn't answer their question. He leaves it hanging and he responds with a question question from God Almighty. Here's what God responds. When you fasted and mourned these 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? When you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting and drinking for yourself? Do justice. Show mercy. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Remove the evil from your heart. When the people asked, God, is it time to restore the kingdom to us? God answers, are you finally ready to live as citizens of the kingdom? God doesn't answer their question. He's determined to do good for his people once again, but he leaves the timing a mystery. A day is coming when Jerusalem will be restored, he says. There will be abundance. God will sow peace and people from every nation, our text says, will follow a Jew into the city because they've heard that God is there. But God's question just hangs there. Are you ready to live as citizens of the kingdom? Are you ready to submit to your king? Because when God brings his kingdom, 
it will either be far more better than they could ever dream or more hellish than their worst nightmares, depending on how they answer this question. Now, between the intro and the conclusion, we have Zechariah's dream journal. And I don't know if you'd want us peeking through here, but we're going to tonight. There are eight wild dreams and some really weird images, probably like many of your dreams. And the first and the eighth dream are these bookends for the dream journal. In dream one, we have four horsemen who are sent out by God into all the earth. And this number four, it signifies how broadly they are investigating the earth. North, east, south, and west. What they report back to God is this. All the earth remains at rest. In the eighth dream, we have four horse-drawn chariots, and these represent the armies of God that he sends out into the world to deal with the nations. And at the end of this dream, it's not the earth at rest. Our text says it's God's spirit at rest. Dreams two and three are related. Dream two, in dream two, Zechariah is shown, uh, shown four horns, and they represent the nations, our text says, that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. But then these four craftsmen appear, and their mission is to knock these horns down, to bring them to ruin. And then dream three comes along, and we see a man. He set out to measure the city of Jerusalem, but pretty quick, we see that the city of Jerusalem is so large, it can't be measured. It's a city without walls because its population and livestock is so grand. Our text shows us that God himself will be the city's defense. He'll be a fiery wall because his presence is with them. War is waged against the nations again who plundered Israel, but at the end of the dream, God lives with his people in the city beyond measure, and our text says that many nations live there too. Dreams 6 and 7 are also related, and in dream 6, Zechariah sees this massive billboard-sized flying scroll, and it's going through the city, and it's, it's stopping liars, it's stopping thieves, and in the end, it consumes all injustice in the city. And in dream seven, we see the wickedness of God's people is portrayed as a woman, a, a foreign goddess, actually, and she's put into a basket, sealed with a lead lid, and then she's flown off into the land of Shinar, now, Shin that was pretty cool. Uh, Shinar is this city, this place that has been come to be symbolic of God's judgment on all humanity. It's not only the place of current Babylon, but it's also the place where the Tower of Babel was built, where all humanity came together to reach the heavens without God. Now, in these four middle dreams, dreams two, three, six, and seven, we see God dealing with the main problem that affects his people, and it's not at all what they think. God is waging war against the nations, their perceived problem. He's fighting against the very instrument that he himself is using against Jerusalem. And in the end... Parts of these nations are part of the people of God. The real problem isn't people. The real problem is wickedness. It's sin. It's, it's evil in God's good world. And God is stomping it out. God sees the evil in his good creation. And he is determined 
to remove it from not only the nations out there, but from the hearts of his own people in the city as well. He's determined to get rid of all idolatry and all injustice in his good world. Well, at the center of this dream journal, we have dreams four and five. And in dream four, we're transported into the heavenly courtroom. And we have some big players on the scene. God Almighty is there, Satan the accuser, and then we have Joshua the high priest. And Joshua, he's wearing these filthy robes and we're told that they represent the sins of God's people. Now, in this scene, God rebukes the accuser, Satan, and he says that he's chosen Jerusalem like a burning stick saved from the fire. And God, God uh, takes those filthy, sin-saturated garments and graciously removes them from Joshua and replaces them with clean and pure robes. And in this scene, God reveals to Joshua that if he fulfills his role as priest, that he will actually become a symbol of things yet to come. God reveals that he will become a symbol of the branch, and there'll be more on that in just a moment. Let's skip to dream six, where we see a different leader. It's no longer the high priest, it's Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, he is from the line of David. He's from the royal line. And God tasks him with finishing the temple. He says, finish the temple not by might or strength, but by God's spirit. And then another symbol is displayed. These two olive trees, and they're joined together by golden pipes. And our angelic tour guide, he reveals that this symbol, it reveals the joining of these two offices. The, the priestly office and the royal office. And together, these two branches become a symbol of the one true branch to come. Now this branch, it's the pinnacle of all of these dreams. And as I mentioned before, the branch, it's this title used by Jeremiah to talk about the future coming Messiah. In all the dreams, God is revealing how and when he's going to bring the kingdom. You see, kingdom has everything to do with who's the king. If you and I want to know what kingdom we belong to, just simply ask yourself, who's your king? Who the king? And you'll know what kingdom you belong to. You see, God is revealing that through this apparent merging of the priest and the royal line, he's going to bring forth a branch, a ruler, a leader, a, a coming priest king and his kingdom. Well, this is so important. There's a bonus vision. Aren't we lucky? And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It's in chapter 6, 9 through 15. Let me just read a few verses from it. Verse 11 says, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. That's a symbol of the king. And set it on the head of Joshua. That's the priest. And say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. I thought that was Zerubbabel. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The vision closes by saying, and all of this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So if you're like me, right now you're thinking, 
how the heck do we apply something like this to our life? That's what I've been struggling with the last few weeks. How do you and I take the fiery walls and the flying scrolls and the four horsemen and we apply this to our lives in the, in the 21st century? Well, as I said before, I think there are times where all Christians ask questions like the exiles did. We ask questions like this, God, is it time? God, are you finally going to act? Why aren't you with me? I've done my bit. Why don't you do yours? God, where are you? And I think a message like the one we have before us today, it answers two different ways depending on our heart behind our questions. Let's just simply say there's a wrong way to ask these questions and there's a right way to ask these questions. When we ask with a wrong heart, in essence, what we're saying is, God, why doesn't this look the way I think it should? God, why aren't you working the way I think you should? Why aren't you doing something? Won't you finally act? You know, I've prayed a lot lately. I've said no to that sin quite a lot. I've gone to church. I've tithed. Isn't it time for you to do, take your turn? And when we ask with the wrong heart, God answers us like this. Who do you think you are? This isn't the kingdom of Adam. This is the kingdom of God. Who's in charge here? You see, so often God's people think they have some inside track, some personal claim on God Almighty. We see this all throughout Scripture. Think of the people of Israel. Often they thought they had some inside track, some special claim on God because of their ancestry. But a book like this reveals God is willing to stomp out evil from the nations and from among his people. We think in the New Testament, we think of Jesus and his biological family when he's in the house teaching and, and Jesus' mother and brothers are standing outside trying to stop him, trying to silence him. And you remember Jesus' answer? Who are my mother and my brothers? Although he loved his biological family, even that familial relationship gave them no claim on Jesus. They still stood outside. You think of two of Jesus' closest disciples. They said, can we sit on your right and your left in the kingdom? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. Or you think about when the, the disciples rebuked children from coming to Jesus. And he rebuked them. He said, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Friends, there is no inside track to God. There is no claim that we could have on God. We approach him on his terms only. If we approach God with a wrong heart, he throws back the curtain on reality. He reveals to us the transcendent, how he's orchestrating every raindrop, every atom, every creature in the cosmos, both visible and invisible. And he says, really? Really? But when we ask with a right heart, in essence, what we're saying is, God, I don't understand, but I'm looking to you. When will you act? God, there's so much hurt in the world around me. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I long for your righteousness and I have nothing to offer. When will you finally act? And when we ask with a right heart, God responds like this, child, soon, hold on a little bit longer. 
You are a citizen of the kingdom. I am with you. I know you don't understand. I know that it hurts, but I'll never leave you. I've been with you the whole time. I belong to you. I'm your God. You're my dear child. When we approach God um, with a right heart, he throws back the curtain on reality. He shows us the transcendent, how he is orchestrating every drop of rain, every atom, every creature in the heavens and the earth. And he says, really? That's the first half of the book of Zechariah. We've briefly covered the first half, and now it's time to dive into the second half. And in the second half, Zechariah is going to give us glimpses of the kingdom and its king. In chapters 9 through 14, the last half of this book, Zechariah gives us glimpses of the kingdom and its king. This last half, last half of the book, it's, it's divided in these two big oracles, and each oracle consists of a series of visions. It's not linear, once again, but it deals with many of the same themes we've been talking about. A good way for us to think about this last half of the book is to imagine a huge window, but we can't see through it. It's all fogged up. And in the fog, you and I see the circumstances of this world. We see the circumstances of this life. And what God does for us in this last half of the book is that through these visions, he, he wipes away a little spot on the glass and he lets us peer into the real reality. He unveils these transcendent truths. And sometimes when we look through the little clearings, we're going we're gonna to see the new heavens and the new earth. And sometimes we're going to see the coming Messiah. We'll see the circumstances behind the exile. And we'll be back in the exodus with Moses. It's, it's another wild ride. I'm just warning you. So in the first glimpse, what we see is that the eye of the Lord is on all humanity and on Israel. God sees the evil, sees the power that people stack up for themselves, and moving from north to south, God brings punishment to Israel's enemies. Now, interestingly, at the time of writing this, uh, the time of Zechariah, none of these enemies listed in this glimpse are even a threat to Israel. Many of them are in worse shape than, than Judah is. But God is using some of their ancient enemies to reveal what's going on, to reveal the future. Strikingly, however, out of the judgment God visits on each of these people groups, a remnant is rescued from each one of them, and it says in our text, they become a clan in Judah, and Judah will be secure. In the next glimpse, we see the coming of the promised king the branch, the Messiah. And it opens with words that I think many of you will be familiar with. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The coming priest king is going to come lowly and humbly. Our text says that he is going to remove the need for weapons from among his people. He is coming to declare peace to the world. And our text says that this ruler will reign over the entire earth. 
It says he's going to use God's people like arrows in a bow to accomplish his mission in the world. And in that time, it says that God himself will protect his people. He'll be like a shepherd protecting his flock. And this glimpse ends with saying he makes them as beautiful as he himself is beautiful. The following glimpse, it reveals God's ferocious anger upon the leaders of his people. He commits to punish these shepherds that watch the flock, but then he reveals that instead he himself will come and shepherd the flock. And this glimpse shows us that under God's care, God's people will become like mighty war steeds. They will become like mighty men in battle, and God will trample his enemies under their feet. He uses language that harkens way back to Moses and the Exodus, and it reveals that when this coming shepherd comes, that it's going to be like a new exodus. God is going to gather his people from the nation. He's going to lead them through the sea of trouble, and he'll lead them into the true land of promise. The last glimpse in Oracle 1 is a sign act. That's where Zechariah himself is tasked with acting out the story of the exile. God shows his anger towards the leaders of his people again because they had no pity on the sheep. They had no pity on the flock. They consumed and treated the people of Judah as commodities. But our text reveals the reason why the leaders had no pity on the people is because God himself had no longer any pity on them either. It says he, Judah got the leaders that they deserved. And because of their wickedness, God sent them into exile. Our text says that he broke the union between Judah and Israel. That he removed his favor from among them. He annulled his covenant with the people. Now, we have just a few more glimpses left in the last oracle. And in this first glimpse, it reveals how God is going to use Jerusalem to defeat all the nations. When the nations come and conspire against God and his holy city, when they rage against God, this glimpse shows us how God will use the inhabitants of Jerusalem to devour them. God will save his people. And this echoes back to Psalm 2 when David says, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? And the believers in the New Testament saw this fulfilled when the nations and the people of Israel plotted and conspired against God, Jesus, in that holy city of Jerusalem. In the next glimpse, we see God pouring out a spirit, a spirit of grace and supplication. The text says that he will cause the whole community when the Spirit is poured out to mourn for piercing God and some closely associated third party. This mourning, our text says, this, this, this grieving will be as intense as that of the mourning of an only child. It will be as widespread as the mourning of the loss of a king. But on that day, chapter 13, 1, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and their uncleanness. The second to last glimpse 
it reveals an hour when God himself will strike his own shepherd, a man who is close to him. At this time when God strikes his very own shepherd, it says that he will turn his hand against his people as well. He will scatter them, and two-thirds of them will die. One-third of the remaining of his flock will be put into the fire, and like silver and gold, they will have their impurities burned off. And up out of the fire will come a new purified people, and they will call out to God. And here's how the glimpse ends. God says, I will say, They are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Well, the last glimpse is intense. And if you're reading this yourself this week, there's some difficult lines to read in this glimpse. But in this last glimpse, the Lord himself instigates an attack against Jerusalem, and this attack is horrendous. It's brutal. But God's purpose in this battle is not to completely destroy his people. He rescues half of them and sends the rest into exile. God himself then fights against the nations that, were, that attacked his holy city. And this day, when God stands on the earth, our text describes cosmic imagery. There's an earthquake. There's an absence of coldness and light. There's an absence of day and evening. It's an uncreation event. And in this glimpse, there's a few other things that happen at that time. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, transforming the world around it. On that day, the Lord will be king over the entire earth. That's the center point of this last glimpse. On that day, all the nations will be made like a plain and Jerusalem will be exalted and live in security. On that day, God will strike his people and fight against Jerusalem, even bringing Judah in the attack against the city. And all of those who survive this battle, the text says they will go up year after year to worship the king. And on that day, The whole land will become holy. Our text says that sacredness will be so extensive that holy to the Lord will be written on every bell of every horse. It'll be written on every piece of pottery throughout the land. There will be no longer any separation between the sacred and the secular for all creation will be sacred. The Lord will be there. And that's how the book ends. That's it. I picture at this point, Zechariah like drops his microphone and he just walks off the stage. He doesn't spend any time applying it. He makes no implications. He just leaves the curtains open for us to draw some conclusions. And that's what I want to do with two broad statements uh, to close out our message tonight. I want to make two broad truth statements from a prophecy like this one. And the first one is this. God wrongfully gets blamed for a whole lot of evil in this world. God wrongfully gets blamed for a whole lot of evil in this world. If God is really good and he's really powerful, then why is there so much wickedness in this world? That's how the question goes. But when we pull back the curtains and the real reality is unveiled, we see that God is consistently faithfully, mercifully, and yet ferociously 
been punishing evil. He's been fighting against wickedness. He's been putting sin to death. With God, wickedness isn't trivialized. The pain that it causes isn't minimized. God sees the wickedness in his good creation. He knows the destruction that it causes. And he did something about it. He's doing something about it. And very soon, he'll be done dealing with it forever. God wrongfully gets blamed for a whole lot of evil in this world. But with reality unveiled, we see that evil's greatest opponent is God himself. The second statement I'll make, and this is how we'll close, is that the king of kings is sitting on his throne. The king of kings is sitting on his throne. You know, it's almost cliche this year to hear that God is in control. Don't worry because Jesus is king. It's almost cliche. I see it on Facebook all the time. But you know what? They're not wrong. Zechariah prophesied that the coming kingdom of God would have everything to do with who rules it. The priest king. Kingdom is all about who's the king. It's about kingship. And Jesus is the king. His kingdom is now. The king has arrived. I want you to think back to the beginning of Mark when Jesus began his public ministry. In chapter 1, he goes into Galilee and he declares the gospel of God. In Mark 1.15, it says that Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. The king and his kingdom is the good news. Friends, Jesus is the high priest our text was talking about. He has taken our dirty, sin-saturated garments. He's taken them off us, and he's worn them himself. He has handed us and dressed us in his clean and pure priestly garments. Jesus is the king from the line of David, and he's the one building God's temple. He's not building it with strength and might. He's building it with the Holy Spirit, and he's building it with you, and he's building it with me. We are living stones being constructed into a spiritual house, according to 1 Peter 2.5. Sisters and brothers, the king has come. In the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he was exalted to the throne. And he is sitting there right now with all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is reigning. He's there today. He is in control. He is the king of kings. He is orchestrating every drop of rain, every atom, Every creature in the cosmos, both visible and invisible. And you know what he says? Come be a citizen of the kingdom. Come enjoy your place as a royal priest in the kingdom of your God. Come submit to my reign and my rule. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come to me, all who thirst. I will be your living water. Come to me, and I will come to you. Come into the only kingdom in the end which stands and avoid the coming wrath to come. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Friends, the king of kings is sitting on his throne. Are we ready to be citizens of the kingdom? Let's pray to our king. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this book of Zechariah. And although I think we will all study this for the rest of our lives and uh, be unpacking these symbols and images for a very long time, God, we just thank you that through your prophet, given long ago, you've given us glimpses of the king and his kingdom, the king that we worship, King Jesus, who gave his life for us, who was raised from the dead, who is exalted and he sits on the throne. Father, thank you for inviting us to be citizens of your kingdom. God, I pray that if there is anyone here tonight who is not a citizen, who is a citizen of this world, is a citizen of the kingdoms of this earth, Father, I pray that you would put the invite before them, that they would taste and see that the king is good. God, I pray that each one of us would live, that we would believe, that we would act that we would have allegiance to you, God, as if our king is really sitting on the throne right now. God, may that be true in your church. May that be true in each one of our lives. God, we love you. We thank you for this glimpse of heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.